And Father, that is our prayer for ourselves individually, for our church, that you would glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through us. Father, we're grateful for the beginning of a new year. We're grateful that we can gather together and we can worship, we can praise, we can sing, we can pray, and uh, Lord, we can then preach the word unfettered. And Lord, uh, my heart's cry is that your word, and not just my words, but your word would find its way into our hearts that individually we would be impacted and changed. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us that ability to respond with repentance and with faith, that we would know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would hunger to make him known by proclaiming that same gospel that we once heard, whether it was a long time ago or a short time ago, and we responded and we were saved, we were born again, we became a new creature, and help us now to be not only uh, impacted by that, but let us be those who will bless others, and so others can be impacted by it as well. Father, I want to do what your word instructs us to do. I want to pray for our leaders today. I pray for our mayor, for our governor, for our representatives, senators. I pray for the cabinet members of our nation. I pray for our president, for our vice president. Lord, I pray above all that they would be saved. I pray that they would, um, that they would enact policies that are righteous. I pray that they would do things in the way that would honor you. And Lord, we know that you're sovereignly engaged with each person that I've named. I pray also for other people who are in authority, like husbands and like moms and like dads, like teachers and elders of churches. And Lord, for all who are in positions of authority, we pray for them. So God, would you enlighten our minds and help our hearts to receive your word implanted as we open it now and to give it to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, with that, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're back in 1 Timothy. After four weeks of uh, talking about um, ancient serpents and seven-headed dragons, and the fact that Christ came into a world very much filled with conflict, and he came to do war and realizing that he has already defeated our enemy, all of our enemies, but someday will completely do away with the remnants of uh, their activity with us. And so we're, we're back in 1 Timothy. And we started several weeks ago. We came through chapter 1 where Paul is establishing the importance of standing for the truth. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he calls it sound doctrine, biblical, absolute truth. And basically what he says in chapter 1 to Timothy and to all who have leadership in the church and to all who are in the church, he's saying, church, Hold the line. Be so steeped in the Word of God that you can recognize and confront false teachers and their false teaching. Because false teaching may entertain the flesh, but it can never profit the soul. And so we spent a lot of time in, in chapter 1, and we talked about that absolute truth that must impact every one of us because we believe firmly that all Scripture is inspired by God. It is literally God-breathed and it is profitable for, now the ESV says teaching, but we know that that word is the Greek word that is also translated in other translations and other places in the ESV as doctrine. 
It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that every man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, chapter 1 basically said this, we must stick to the basics. Know the basics, again, so well that when false teachers appear in this congregation, and they could, or when they appear in the form of a book, or a YouTube video, or a social media feed that you and I will be able to spot those false teachings and to reject them. Now, we move to chapter 2, where Paul begins to lay down instructions for how a church is supposed to conduct itself. And he does so as we go through probably the, the verse 1 of chapter 2 all the way through the first several verses of chapter 4, and then we go into, now we're going to do this this way because this is chronologically the order in which these books were written, First Timothy, then Titus, and then the last book that the Apostle Paul wrote, the most intimate, is Second Timothy. But here's what he said to the church, and this wasn't just the church in Ephesus, this is to the church at Heritage. He said, if I delay in coming, I'm writing these things to you. And I, I'm going to say this probably a couple of times not because culture has determined them or dictated them. But I want you to know what God says about how you are to conduct yourselves in the household of God. And in case you're wondering what he means by that, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so... What we're going to be doing in chapter 2 and for the next several weeks, months, I don't know, however long it takes us to get through this section, is to see what God, through Paul, develops to Timothy and to us as a kind of, get this, a church manual for how to do church. Now, here's what we're going to do. Usually I read scripture at the beginning. We're going to read the entire second chapter of Timothy, and I'm going to give you, not up on the screen today, I'll bring these back next week, but I, I, I tried my best to put them in a way that could be easily remembered. You don't have to write them down or try to remember them today, but just know that this is the flow of chapter 2, and as I read it, we'll talk about the blocks that, that we'll be discussing in the days ahead and how that Paul spells this out for us. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2, are you there? Beginning in verse 1, the first block, the first chunk is this. Paul is talking about the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. By the way, this is a, I couldn't have planned it better to begin the very first Sunday, the very first day of the new year for the Church of Jesus Christ at Heritage. The priority of prayer. First of all, then, therefore, I urge, Paul says in verse 1, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Second block. Really, verse 3 is kind of the last part of the first block and the first part of the second block. So if the first block was the priority of prayer, the second block in the manual for church, how to do church is this, a passion for missions, a passion for the global vision of God. Let me start with verse 3 again because it will be the first verse of next week's message, the Lord willing. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior, God our Savior, not only prayer, but what is to follow, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The priority of God's missionary heart. 
The third block, the preeminence of Jesus Christ as our only mediator, verses 5 through 7. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time for this, this gospel. I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And that's why we believe it is Christ alone. Solas Christus. You're saved through Christ alone. The, the third block, verses 8 through 10. So we've talked about the priority of prayer, the passion for missions, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm doing my best to imitate John MacArthur here and putting a P at the front. I, I really worked hard on this, folks. The preservation of the biblical identities of men and women. This is in the manual for how to do church. Verse 8, I desire then in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The preservation of the biblical identities of men and women in the church. And then the last one. By the way, somebody asked me a while back, are you looking forward to preaching through the second chapter? Because that can be controversial. The culture has made it controversial. It was not controversial when Paul penned it. And so the last part, here we've got the priority of prayer, the passion for missions, the preeminence of Christ Jesus, the only mediator, the preservation of the biblical identities of men and women in the church. And the last one is the promotion of biblical roles of men and women in church leadership. And it sets us up for chapter 3. Let me read it to you, starting with verse 11. Let a woman... Learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness without self-control. I know you're itching for me to get there, but it's going to be about four weeks before we will get to that point. Let's look at the first priority for the church, all right? These simple verses that are here. We're not going to get to verse four today. We're going to save that for next week because it really gets into that second part of it, the passion for global missions. Paul says it like this in verse 1. First of all, first of all, the very first priority, he says, I urge you, Timothy, just like he, in chapter 1, where he urges Timothy. This is a very strong word. That in chapter 1, he said, set things straight in the church. So he goes on to say, first of all, then, I urge. And in rapid fire succession, he uses four different facets of this thing called prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, the question you have to ask is like when we go back to chapter 1, that was obviously a, a, a note of correction. There were problems in the church at Ephesus. You remember when I talked about uh, Hymenaeus uh, and Alexander at the, la the, the very last, that, that I think it broke uh, Paul's heart to write those things. But here he's urging, I'm not sure if this is a problem or not. But what he is saying is, it should be a priority in the church. 
And as I was studying this, I was thinking, Paul, of all of the things that you could say for the church today, how many of our people would put prayer at the top of the list? I'm not sure I would. I probably would have put biblical teaching. But Paul said that's not the first in, in urgency. The most urgent thing is that people are praying, the people of God are praying, biblically informed praying, mind you, but praying. And so here's what we're going to do for the remainder of the time. We're going to look at the kinds of prayer, the what, the what of prayer, the four different kinds of prayer. They're not hard and fast distinctions, but they are, again, like a diamond, different facets that show off a different nuance of the kind of thing that we are to be doing. He, he just kind of piles up synonyms for this thing that we are supposed to be doing in the church called prayer. Then we're going to look at the objects of prayer. You might have noticed my lead in prayer was a little bit different this morning. And I had to confess this last week while studying. I always say this, who, who am I preaching first of all to? Moi. So, Brown, you better get after it. If, if, if the people of God are going to be praying, and, and the what is not only spelled out, but the who is also spelled out, you better be modeling those for whom you need to be praying. Marty Brown, Heritage Baptist Church, not just publicly, but privately as well. And then the motive for praying. And this is, all of this is so uh, incredibly encouraging, and it's just straight to the point. Again, these are not hard and fast distinctions. These are just things that we need to be doing all the time, every day, individually, corporately as we come together on Sunday. And there need to be different components in this thing that we do for about an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes, whatever it is, if I go long, maybe more. But we need to be doing this. We need to be doing what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, praying without ceasing. Prayer for what? Praying that people, and you're going to see this in the next week or so, praying that people, all kinds of people, be reached with the gospel is the life of the church. Okay, let's go through the four different kinds of prayer, all right? This is the, this is the what of praying. What are you supposed to be doing when you pray? Supplication. Supplication is simply a humble prayer that is specific. If somebody says, uh, pray for me, that's, that's the next one. Prayers, that's the general word for ongoing needs, communicating for God. But supplication, and by the way, these are not in any particular order. Just do all of them. Praying is something very, very specific. Can I pray for you? Do you ever ask somebody that? I know you do. But what to, ought to follow is, tell me one thing specifically that I can pray for you about today that will impact your life this next week. A supplication and then prayer, all kinds of prayer for ongoing needs, general needs. Now let me stop and say something that's very, very important because I'm hearing this. I've been hearing it for a little while. I don't know how long, but it, it, this is a correction to a very common thought that is out there. Prayer, please get this, prayer is what we do. And I've been hearing this for a while, that prayer is a two-way street. Prayer specifically, technically, is what we do. Prayer is not listening to God. A denominational leader recently said, we don't spend enough time in prayer listening to God. 
your sound doctrine meter, when you just heard that, should have gone off. Okay? That's not straight and true. Now, if you have your Bible open and in your prayer time, you are reading and ask the Holy Spirit to quicken, to illuminate what has been revealed, then certainly that should be a part of your daily time with the Lord. That ought to be going on 24-7. That's why Bible memory is important, so you can chew and meditate and all the rest of that. But specifically, prayer is what we do to God. And here's how you know this, because God talking to me is never called prayer in the Bible. God speaking to me through revelation and illumination of his word is what we ought to be seeking. Does that make sense? We need to hear that. Third thing, intercession. These are things that another word is petition. And here's the nuance of that. And you think of Jesus as the intercessor going into the presence of, of, of the Father. Intercession means we go freely and unhindered into the presence of God and we plead with God as a loving Father concerning the interests of others. Here's the way that might look for you. Let's say you're praying for a family member. You call them by name before the Lord. That's a general prayer. And then either they have shared with you or you just know because they're a family member that there is a specific need that they have. And so you call out that need before the Father. But intercession is when you go before the Father on behalf of that loved one and you're crying out to God on behalf of that person, the interest of that other person. Now, the first three things seem, uh, you know, those are, you do those and you know you need to, but the last one, as I studied this, and I'd never really even looked at it before, I thought, well, it's just, it's all the same. I think the last one is probably the most challenging part of the prayer life that you have individually, that I have individually, and for the life of the church, and thanksgivings, plural. That simply means gratitude to God, thanking Him. Let's say, say you're praying for a family member who is lost or who says they're saved, but they're just not walking with the Lord. They're away from the Lord. And you're pouring out your heart to God. At which point do you thank God? Not only for that person, but for God's sovereignty in dealing with that person. For his sovereign will to be accomplished through people is what you're really asking. And so we go to 1 Thessalonians verse 1 and 18. Let me see if I can get that. Uh, oh, 518. It says this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As I said, this, as, as I studied it and, and it became more than academic, I realized that in many ways this was one of the most difficult parts of prayer for me. And I think it may be for you as well. Let's go on to the objects of prayer. That's the what of prayer, okay? We've already defined that for you. Who are the objects of your prayer? Here's what Paul says right here. He says all people. Paul instructs that our prayers are to be, now I want you to listen to this very carefully because this is going to be helpful as we talk about next week's message. Our prayers are to be universal in scope. They are to reflect God's heart to save all kinds of people. God wants to save people without distinction, without prejudice. 
And so that means you pray for all kinds of people. You pray for the rich, don't you? And you pray for the poor. Two different kinds of people. You know, I, I, I begin to think of that. Do I really do that in my prayer life? Who's the richest man in America? And do you pray for him? I had to look it up. Who are the richest three men in America? Do you know? Elon Musk is at the head of the list so far. Do you pray for him? Do you give supplications, intercessions, prayer? Do you thank God? Who's the second richest man? Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. Do you thank God for Jeff Bezos? Who's the third richest man? Bill Gates. Oh, oh, now you're meddling, Pastor. We're to pray for the rich and we're to pray for the people that on the street corners that don't have a house to live in, don't have food to eat, maybe. We're to pray for the high and the low, the young and the old. We're to pray for the good and the bad. The wise and the foolish, we're to pray for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why? Because it's all of those kinds of people that God wants to save. And so we pray for them. Now here's, here's the thing that you've got to see. Here's why Paul says pray for all people. He does not say pray for every individual. Because first of all, you can't. But you can pray for all kinds of people. You, here is something that, that you need to, to understand. You might not be able to speak to those people about God. I doubt that I ever meet Elon Musk or Bill Gates. So I'm not going to be able to speak to those people about God. But I can speak to God about those people. And that's what he's saying. Paul makes that clear by pointing to a very specific example. Verse 2. Look at this. Pray for all kinds of people, he said, for kings and all who are in high positions. We'll stop there because, well, I'll just read it because that's, that's the who. We're on the who now. And then the third part is the reason or the motive, the why, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You see, when he says for kings and all who are in high positions, no spiritual elitism because it says all people, but here Paul singles out political rulers and all who are in positions of authority or power. Now think about that. So boys and girls, please listen to me. You may not have it on your radar to pray for President Joe Biden. But who's an authority in your life? Come on. How about your daddy? How about your mommy? I, even though he, he, he is saying these particular kinds of people, I believe the all who are in authority helps the church to see that we are to pray as I did, as I tried to in my, my prayer to begin this time, for mommies and daddies, for husbands and wives, for employers, for teachers, for elders, pastors, Sunday school leaders, Awana leaders, all of those who are in any kind of position of authority. Why? Because God has appointed them to be there. This is one of the most basic kinds of things. Why do we pray for every leader in every nation at all times because God has appointed that leader. Did you realize that? There is no authority except that which is appointed by God. And kids, you may not like your mom or your dad sometimes. But as God's authority, God gave you your mommy and your daddy in whatever way that came about. And then we work our way upwards, and all of a sudden, it begins to get more challenging. You know, sometimes this, th that particular, look at that again, God appoints. 
Because why? God uses. Does God use even wicked, evil leaders? Cyrus was one of the worst. We know the story because we went through Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah. But, but Cyrus, I, this is an incredible little passage of Scripture. God appointed Cyrus, and he's very specific. I'm going to use you. He was going to use Cyrus to do some things with his people, the chosen people of God, to bring discipline on them. But here's what he said. I'm going to use you, Cyrus, even though you don't know me. Twice he says that. And that ought to bring encouragement to us to pray for those who really, really, through their personalities or their lifestyle or or their policies, the leaders who don't seem to be doing what we think they ought to be doing. And that's where it becomes difficult in praying for them. I'll just be blunt personally with you. It's a whole lot easier for me to criticize some of our leaders who are in power right now than it is to pray for them. And frankly, when I measure, I go back in the last little while. Now, I'm not saying call out those who are doing wrong by saying that's wrong biblically. But if you, like I found myself as I studied this, if you find yourself criticizing them more than you find yourself praying for them, then Paul's words become a necessary correction to you, church. And for a church that is largely conservative, biblically and politically, And I know different meanings could be draped over that word conservative, but I think that is one of the hardest things that you will find yourself doing in response to what Paul says. He says, supplication, prayer, intercession. What was the last one? Oh, thanksgiving? For those of you not familiar with, maybe I shouldn't say this. I I thought about myself. The Peter principle is an old principle in hiring and human resources and all the rest of that. If you don't know what it is, look it up later. Not now, please. Just let me finish the sermon. The Peter principle. I think we have leaders in a lot of places from the highest down who are sterling examples of the Peter principle. And I was thinking to myself this morning, am I one of those? For those of you who know what that is, you'll catch my meaning. So what did I do this morning when I was going over my sermon? I prayed. I I, I usually do. I pray for myself in my daily quiet time. I pray for, I just start out by praising God. I use the Lord's Prayer as a template praising God. Then I pray for myself. I pray for my family. I pray for you. I pray for the church. I pray for our leaders by name daily. I pray then I expand it out and I pray for our leaders and I pray for for current events and I pray for world leaders as well. But this morning in thinking about that, I, I came to one of the, I really had to pray about my praying. Am I really thankful, Lord, for Richard Levine? That was his name before he changed it to Rachel. This is not a hate statement. But but if you keep up with at least a little bit of some of the policies that are coming out, being spewed out from leaders like this, And I had to confess, Lord, it's hard for me to be thankful, but I will give you thanks. Because I know that just like Cyrus, you are using sovereignly 
every leader, including me, in your divine plan. Because even wicked leaders will ultimately serve the purposes of God. Now, in case you think that this is a little bit misguided and that Paul would never really say anything like this, who was the emperor, he said, for kings and all in authority? Who was the emperor when Paul was writing this? Nero. Do you know what Nero did? Kids, cover your ears. This is gross. He would wrap Christians in animal skins and throw them in to the lions and wild dogs. He, he, would put, he would wrap Christians with hay or with tar, and he would set them afire to light his parties in his royal garden. This guy was one of the most wicked leaders ever to live, and yet Paul said, pray for kings, for emperors, and for those in authority. We may not see it. But do you really believe that prayer, your prayer, this church's prayer impacts things on a personal level? How about a national level? How about an international level? Apparently Paul thought so, and that's why he said to pray whether or not we see immediate results. Now let me say this sentence, and I think you'll hear the heart of it. Politics is not the business of the church, but praying for politicians is the business of the church. And who knows whether God, in, in whose hands the, the, the heart of the king is like water, moves it where he will. We have seen this over and over again. Those of you who have particularly done any kind of missions. I, I know that in my communication personally with Pastor Orhan, when we started working with them and going over and prayer walking and the church engaged in praying, and this is just one example. We can pray for those in Chiapas. Mark, I think you're here this morning, and we can pray for those there, and it impacts. But more than once, Pastor Orhan has said it's because Heritage Baptist Church has prayed and sent people to pray that through them, Agape has not only survived, they've been allowed to build a church, a physical church building, and also to plant churches in probably six other towns. And it's because people have been praying. So I encourage you to pray for all of those in authority and in high places. I can't pray for every person, but then Paul doesn't say I should. He says all kinds of people. But start with those in authority. And here's the why. The last thing, the motive of our prayer is simply this. Look at this. Living lives of peace, tranquility, living calmly in the midst of a war zone. That's essentially what he's saying. Peace is the inward quality. Quiet and calm is the outward life. And then what is produced by that, the inner quality of peace or tranquility, when everything around you is going wrong, and the calm that is the outward manifestation, then what people are going to see is godly and dignified lives in every way. This is missional praying. Now, let me make a, a, a little note here for you. This does not mean, and, and here's what I can fall into so easily, that the primary motive for our personal prayer is our personal comfort and enjoyment. Paul doesn't mean that. He says the motive is for things to be so ordered by God that the gospel is able to move forward. It's... Uh, I wrote this down. This kind of praying, missional praying, is greasing the skids for the gospel so that the Savior might save. Here's a story for you. Do you remember Saul? Now, I'm talking about the Saul of the New Testament. 
He was a high-ranking Jewish leader in the early church. And I was wondering this week, was anybody praying for Saul? Do you know the story, basically, of the early church? Peter and John, I'll pick it up there. Peter and John are in the temple. There's a lame man. God heals through Peter, and then they preach the gospel. 5,000, by the way, got saved. But then the authorities came, took them before the court, said, what is this you're teaching? And they noticed something about him. What did they notice? Calm, peace, tranquility. In the, these guys are uneducated. Where, where did they get this? Where did they, this godly and dignified demeanor? And they were just preaching to them. And so the authorities realized they really couldn't do anything at that point, so they let them go, threatened them. What did Peter and John do? They went to the church. Now, imagine, okay, okay, imagine that two of our leaders um, were out downtown Bricktown last night. I'm sure that that place was hopping. And they start preaching, and somebody who was, a, you know, one of the guys, one of the street people, and they were lame, they'd never walked. One of our guys walked over and said, get up, and the guy got up. And all of a sudden, a ripple happens through the crowd, and, and that leader starts preaching like Peter did. And I don't know that 5,000 people were down there, but get a, get a sense of this. Everybody gets saved at Bricktown. And the authorities come and say, oh, don't, don't, don't do that. And so they hold them overnight. That's what they did. And the next day, they let them out. And what did they do? They sent them back to their, well, they didn't send them, but Peter and John came back to the church. What was the church doing? They weren't scattered, they were assembled. So I want to you just kind of get a feel for this. All of a sudden, through these back doors, two of our leaders burst in, and we call them up because it says they testified. We call them up here, hey, t- where you been? We've been down in Bricktown. What have you been doing? We've been preaching. What happened? 5,000 got saved. And we got arrested and the leaders told us not to preach. And so here we are. So what would your response be? Given every, and I think Paul was referring back to this very episode. What would our response be, church? Well, they can't put you in jail. We need to get out and protest. We need to call ADF. We need to lawyer up. I'm going to condense it. Here's what they did. It says they were released. They went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and elders had said, and when they heard it, I don't know if somebody was leading it, but almost like a groundswell, they lifted their voices and said, Sovereign God. And then, who were the objects of their prayers? Why did the nations, the Gentiles, rage? The peoples devise vain things. Now, I'm taking out part, those parts because here's who they prayed for. They prayed for the Gentiles and the peoples and the kings of the earth and the rulers, and they even threw in Herod and Pontius Pilate. And then they ended that whole thing with a super missional kind of prayer. And now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. And lo and behold... There was a young deacon in that meeting. His name was Stephen. What did he do in response to that prayer? He went out and started preaching. By the way, I think most of you know the story. If you don't, you can read it in early chapters of the book of Acts. He got himself killed. 
But as he was being stoned to death, that crowd saw something. They saw a tranquility, an inner peace. They saw a calm. They saw a trust in the sovereign God. They saw godliness and dignity. I wonder how many people had been stoned, cursing and swearing at their killers, at their murderers. Stephen did not do that. Instead, falling to his knees, his flesh being torn, his bones being broken by those rocks, and he interceded, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, what did he do? I love this. People outside of Christ, most of the time in the Bible, when they die, what does it say they did? Died. Most of the time when it says a believer died, what does it say they did? They fell asleep. Their body just fell asleep waiting for the resurrection. Well, there's just so much richness in that. And guess what? Whoops, got ahead of myself. Who was there who might not have been prayed for by name, but in that congregation, they prayed for those in authority? Who was there that they laid their coats at the feet of? Saul. And he saw all of this. And that set him up for the road to Damascus encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, where he was thoroughly, thoroughly saved and converted and born again and became a champion for the gospel. And so after that, look, why, why, does, why does Paul say to pray for those in authority so that you may live this kind of life for the unfettered spread of the gospel and look at the results of what happened after Saul was saved. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, that's a huge area, had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. I don't know that this is true, but could Paul have been looking back on that whole experience of his conversion, knowing that people were praying for him, and he said, guys, you may not see it now, but you have no idea what kind of things your prayers can accomplish for the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he said, this is good. This is pleasing in the sight of God. What's pleasing? Praying for politicians. Praying for our leaders. Not just for changes of policy. But as in the case of the Apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, he happened to discover a change of destiny. And how? Through hearing the gospel. There's one God, and there is man, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That testimony is being born today. And if what we have said today, you're wondering, what in the world? Praying for leaders and praying for, you know. And you can be on the other side of the fence. I know there, there are people who found it very, very difficult to give thanks for, for Donald Trump. And just back through the ages, sure. But you start doing what God says. And God does incredible things through that. Now, in order for you to do that, you have to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And so if you're not today, you've come in here maybe with a family member, I don't know, maybe you just wandered in. It wasn't by mistake. It was so that you could hear that every person has sinned against a holy God. 
and that we are responsible. Every man is responsible and is under the just condemnation of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God, in his mercy and grace, gave his son. He became a man. We discovered this during our Christmas season. He became a man in the person of his son and our Savior, the mediator, Jesus Christ. By repenting of your sins and turning by faith to Jesus Christ, you can be born again. You can be saved. You you can become a child of God You can enter into that life where this kind of praying as a believer and as a church will all of a sudden begin to make sense to you. Now, to those of you who are believers, who are members of our church, regular attenders, you've you've thrown in your lot with us, okay? I pray as I know all of you pray. I know you pray. But what if this year, I'm not asking you to make a resolution, just a commitment growing out of what Christ has done for you. What if this year prayer became more than just something you do? It became an essential, this kind of praying. What kind of things could God do through Heritage Baptist Church? More, I believe, than we could think or even imagine. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for the exhortations of the Apostle Paul, the urgings to pray in a particular kind of praying for a certain kind of people and with a particular motive in mind. And so I thank you that you hear these prayers right now. I pray for those in this congregation who don't know you. I pray that today would be the day that you grant to that man or that woman or that young person or child the gifts of repentance and faith. Father, because your word says that they won't come unless they're drawn by the Father, I I, I pray that you would draw them to the Lord Jesus. I pray that they would be thoroughly and gloriously saved and Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would commit to uh, studying through this church manual portion of Scripture so that we could be what you've called us to be, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So I thank you for that. Help us to respond now in these moments. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.